Thank you for tuning back into the Horse Fix, where you can get that much-needed horse fix and perhaps fix your horse at the same time. I'm Sandy Holt, and I'm coming to you from the training facility of Winter Haven Ranch in Aubrey, Texas, Horse Country, USA. So, today I'm going to touch on a subject that many of us really don't like to think about, not alone talk about, and that is when it's time to say goodbye to our horse. There are many reasons to say goodbye to a horse that we have purchased or acquired, and not always bad, but many times it can be pretty sad. In fact, it has taken me, um, well, I started three times ago trying to uh, publish this podcast, but each time I would get a little emotional, so I'd start over and wanted to relay the information in a kind of a pragmatic way. <laughs> but that didn't actually work. You know, I started out, I actually scripted it because I, uh, I usually don't, but I thought, well, maybe that will help me get through this podcast. But I didn't like that. And then I tried to just shoot from the hip and I was kind of rambling, so I didn't like that. And so now I think I'm just going to speak from the heart and share some stories with you and talk to you about what it's like to say goodbye to a horse if you haven't and to share with you my sentiment to those of you who have had to say goodbye to horses that you have loved. And uh, well, we'll kind of go from there. So let's get started. you can agree that one of the happiest moments of our life is when we got our first horse or even our 10th horse. Um, Getting a horse is such a joy and, and it fulfills dreams and just fills your heart with love and, and peacefulness. But then the saddest part is when we say goodbye. Now to start, I want to talk about the saying goodbyes because we need to or want to, not because we have to. There are several reasons why your forever horse may not be your forever horse. And guys, don't feel guilty about that. It's not something that we planned. And, you know, I know that when you've decided, for instance, to sell your horse, you think back at that first day when you threw your arms around the horse and promised him that you will never have to go to another place again. This is your forever home and I will take care of you. And then you find that, well, perhaps you can't afford your horse anymore out of no fault of your own. But the board, 
the vet bills, the shoeing bills, the supplements, the training bills, and what have you, are just more than you can possibly take. And, you know, you have to make a decision. And perhaps you feel that you need to be fiscally responsible to your family and not have this financial burden anymore. So you decide to sell your horse. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, really. I mean, you just need to say, what is the best thing for my horse? If you can't afford it, you're not giving your horse the best life. If you're skipping trimmings or shoeings, or if you're cutting down on his feed, you know, all the things that jump into the financial part of it, you know, if you can't handle that financial part of it, then the best thing you can do for your horse is to find a new home. Now, I encourage you to find the right home. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are the type of person that wants to find just the right home. As long as you find the right person to buy your horse, you should carry no guilt. And, you know, the same goes with, let's say, that you find that your horse is just not the right fit for you. You had the idea that you would buy this horse based on how you felt at that moment, and you made that emotional commitment to buy him. And then you find that he's a show horse, and you're not a show person. And all of his life, he's been a show horse. Well, he's going to yearn for that job. And so if you don't supply him with his desires, you're not doing the best thing for him. So go out and find a show person for your show horse. Enjoy the fact that you have made a good decision. And you know, there there's so many reasons. I mean, let's say that your horse you feel is a danger to you and you just can't trust it then do your very level best to find that person that is not intimidated by that horse and that will give him the kind of life that he wants. The list goes on and on as why we might say goodbye to our horses. And and my point here is to tell you that if you're wondering if you should be making that decision to sell your horse or to donate your horse or to give your horse, or to lease your horse. If you're wondering about it at all, it's probably time to do it. I, for one, the horses that I have, I there's no consideration on my part at all that I want to sell them. But if there were, I would know that that was a sign that I needed to make a decision. And if any of you feel awkward or, or guilty about doing that, call me or email me, text me, let me know how you feel, and I will help you get through that. I promise. Now, there's another part of saying goodbye to our forever horses, and that is a part where we do have a choice, and yet we don't. I'm talking about the horse that is critically ill, or that's so old that he no longer has quality of life. And we're needing to make that decision as to whether to euthanize him or not. I, um, I'm going to tell you a couple of stories now. Last year, I had to say goodbye to one of my miniature horses, 35-year-old Dallas. He was a brilliant little horse. He was one of the favorites of the barn. And when children would come, they would gravitate toward him and he was just big enough to let the toddlers ride him. And I uh, 
I owed him a lot. He helped so many of my students with their confidence level with the horses, and he was just an absolute pleasure and a dream. Well, one day he looked a little sad and stopped eating and then started to lay down and to roll. Of course, we knew he had colic. Called the vet right away, and the vet came out and confirmed that he did have it. Well, we tried everything, and long story short, by midnight that night, he was in such pain that the vet came back out and suggested that we euthanize him. And it was very difficult for me to agree with her, but uh, I knew that he deserved my good judgment. Here's the hard part, though. So when we decided, yes, we would go ahead and let the vet euthanize him, we realized that it was dark and couldn't find a, a way to take the tractor and dig a hole that night and to bury him. So we needed to walk him quite a ways, about two or three acres, back behind one of our old barns to lay him to rest there and cover him and so that we could bury him the next day and no one would, you know, come upon him in the community area the next morning. Well, so I began to walk him. Now, my friend Tiffany was with me and she had been helping me all along to walk him and to care for him. She she walked with me. And, you know, at one point, as I was walking him back there, and the vet and Tiffany were with me, you know, I looked down at him, and he seemed kind of perky. And I asked the vet, well, maybe he's getting better. And she looked at me and said, sadly, no, he, he isn't better. I guess it was either my wishful thinking or that he knew that relief was about to come. I don't know. But what I felt is that my poor little Dallas was trusting me. I was leading him to his death and he didn't know it. And he willfully and sweetly followed along, not knowing what was about to happen. That stuck with me for a long time, guys. I mean, it was very difficult. And you know, I guess because he was so little and vulnerable, I don't know, because I, I put a lot of horses down in my day. I mean, I've had horses all my life. I'm 70 years old, and I've never felt this sort of twinge of guilt. At any rate, uh, got him to behind the barn, and I was holding him, and the vet looked at me and said, are you ready? <laughs> No, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for him to leave me, but I was ready to do the right thing. So she took the huge syringe and she injected him. And he slowly, with dignity, went to his knees and then to his shoulder and then lie his head down and went to sleep. And it was over. And my cute little... Dallas, who had been with me for years and years and years and had done so much for me, was gone. And it was because I said, yes, I'm ready. Tiffany and I held each other and cried for, it seemed like, quite a while while the vet covered Dallas and did what she needed to do. And then we started back to the barn. I held an empty halter in my hand and carried an empty heart. And as we started back, it started to rain. And the harder that it 
rained, the better I liked it. I can't really explain it, but I needed, I guess, proof of life? Uh, I'm not sure, but I really wanted to feel something um, hurting me. <laughs> Odd as it sounds, at that very moment, the pain brought me comfort. I guess I'm telling you this story for a couple of reasons. First one being that if this has ever happened to you, you're not alone and know that it's it's human to feel sad and to feel guilty and and to feel grief. Allow yourself that and be patient with yourself in that process. But also to let you know that there may come a time when you may need to give your horse a gift, that gift being tender release. And by doing so, you've given him the greatest gift of all. I think that all of you out there that have had to make that decision would agree with me that it is one of the hardest decisions you will ever make in your life. And having made that decision compounds the feeling that you have along with your grief. And so there's an introspective uh, sensation that uh, we really don't have a whole lot of control over. So like I said, be patient with yourself and allow the process to happen. We all grieve in our own way. There's no right or wrong way to grieve. And, you know, we never stop grieving, really. It changes, though. And I'm here to tell you... uh, having lived all these 70 years, that um, it does get okay. Uh, The grieving takes on a new feeling. And uh, at some point, you're able to conjure up your memories with a smile on your face rather than a tear in your eye. Okay, I have one more very short story for you, and this one's a little less sobering. It has to do with the other side of the scenario. Having been a horse broker for many years, I have, you know, had the privilege of buying several horses and working with them and then reselling them. And it's been a wonderful experience for me, but it's sometimes it's a little hard when the person brings me a horse. And uh, for example, I had one lady whose husband had died just before she brought the horse to me. And she wasn't the one that rode the horse, but she loved the horse dearly and had just lost her husband. But now she was about to lose her horse because she fell on hard times and couldn't afford it. So she brought me her horse and and was very tearful, and you could tell was feeling bad. As she drove away, she stopped twice and got out of her truck and went back over to hug her horse, and oh my gosh, it just broke my heart to watch her be so sad. So this little story is for you to know that there is another side to it if you have to sell your horse. I was excited about getting the horse, felt bad for her, of course, but I felt excited to engage with this horse's future. I felt a responsibility, but it was one that I was ready to take on. I felt happy that I was able to help her out of a financial problem and that the horse was coming to someone who would take 
wonderful care of it, that would be me, and to either rehome it to someone else who would just be uh, an awesome owner or to keep it myself. So if you're one of those ones that has to sell your horse, know that there is another side to the pancake, so to speak. I always say there are, no matter how flat the pancake is, there are always two sides. And so there, there is that other side that is welcoming and that is joyful because of your decision to do the right thing for your horse. You're making someone else happy and creating a, a better environment for your horse. Okay, let's move on to the question and answer part of the podcast. I have a question here from Carrie Trusty, and she says this. My question is, what should I look for in a trail horse? And then she says, and are there specific ways I should be riding while on the trail? Thank you, Carrie Trusty. P.S. I love your podcast. Well, Carrie, thank you, first of all, for loving my podcast. I always like to hear that. Regarding trail horses, like any other, you want to make sure that the horse is healthy and is checked out by a vet before you buy it. There are some specific things that I like to look at when I'm buying a trail horse. One of the first things I like to notice is, are the feet healthy? Are they strong enough to walk over rugged terrain and able to keep shoes on? And secondly, do they have well-pronounced withers? In other words, able to comfortably hold a saddle for hours and keep a saddle from rolling or slipping up and down hills? And then do they have a well-proportioned neck long enough to provide balance up and down hills? Do they have skin that is not too thin or sensitive and can tolerate insects while out on the trail? I like to look at the personality traits of a trail horse in this way. I I want to see a horse with a quiet disposition, one that's willingly guided and moves along calmly and does not get rattled over everything he sees, hears, or smells. And, you know, it's okay for them to perk their ears and to stand still for a second and and maybe even, you know, breathe out, but then move back to you mentally. And then I, I, I like a trail horse to have courage and one that doesn't overreact and may get startled by uh, or start to bolt by something they might see. I want a horse that can stay tuned in to me and instead of reacting, use their thinking side of their brain. And also in a trail horse, I look for one that has patience, that they'll stand quietly uh, for another horse to catch up or for the rider to dismount or mount, or they'll stand quietly while being tied or hobbled. I don't want one that is so impatient that if you lag behind for a minute, uh, he has to feel that he has to gallop up to catch up with a crowd of horses, that kind of thing. I also want my trail horse to get along well with other horses and it doesn't kick or bite or or pin his ears at the horses as they approach him. I want one that travels well. In other words, is able to walk maybe four miles per hour to catch up with other horses or perhaps three miles per hour to be the lead horse. And I want an attentive attitude. I want that horse to listen to the rider rather than being distracted. And we've mentioned that before. 
I want a horse that has good manners and that respects and does not ignore the rider, stopping and snacking on leaves or grass. If I'm able to find all of those attributes, then I ask myself if the horse has or has the potential for being safe speed with speed control that you can control the speed and the horse doesn't control it, that it will wear hobbles when necessary, quietly and uh, not in a dangerous way, that he loads and unloads and travels well in the horse trailer, and he goes through water and over bridges, and he goes through high grass and picks his way over logs and jumps or other obstacles, and that he'll ride away from the other horses without issues, I want one that knows where his feet are at all times and can turn around on a narrow trail. And this one is an important one, will stand quietly on a ledge. I used to ride in Arizona on Rocky Mountain areas, and sometimes the ledges would be so thin, and I would hold my breath, hoping that these horses that I rode, as they were school horses that I taught at, at a boarding school. Well, I was hoping that these school horses had knowledge of to where their feet were at all times. Now, how to ride on a trail? Well, I encourage you that don't be dead weight. Uh, ride lightly over the obstacles and up and down hills. Use a breast collar to keep your saddle on if you are going up and down hills a lot. Lean forward when you're riding up a hill and lean back and when you're going down a hill. And if at all possible, zigzag down that hill. Makes it a lot easier on the horse. Keep your horse moving when you're walking through water. Uh, your horse stopping in the middle, starting to paw, and then lays down and rolls. So keep him moving. Keep him moving past the foreign objects or wild animals. Once they stop, they start reacting instead of thinking. So keep them moving so that they're, they are thinking about going forward and thinking about being with you, the rider. Now do allow your horse to stop and rest occasionally. Make sure you, if you're on long trail rides, that you find a way to stop to water them. Always apply the same rules with your horse on the trail as you do in the arena. For example, when you're in the arena and you want to lope left around the circle of the arena, you lope on the left lead. When you're out on the trail, make a decision which lead you want and ask for that lead. And don't accept the horse just picking up any old lead they want. Again, you control your speed while you're in the arena. Be sure to control your speed while you're out on the trail as well. All those little rules that if you're consistent in the arena, and consistent on the trail. And Carrie, never go out on a trail by yourself. Always bring at least one person with you. Carry a cell phone, carry a canteen of water, and just be practical and think wisely when you go out on the trail. I hope this has helped you, Carrie, and I hope it has helped others too that have listened to it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it. Uh, give me a thumbs up or give me a rating and um, subscribe if you haven't subscribed yet. So this podcast has been a little up and down emotionally, but I'm hoping that it has resonated with some of you and it will help you along your decision-making processes when it's needed. So until next time, may all your blues be ribbons. Bye-bye. <laughs>